0: Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm struck this morning uh, by just the weekly routine of this, of how we gather together as a people to hear from God's word uh, so that we can go out and live faithfully as uh, his followers. It's just, a, it's just a, a beautiful rhythm, I think. And so again, we come this morning to the book of Hebrews to look at this letter written to these Christians about uh, the significant pressures and struggles that they were having. Uh, And it's just, again, I'm just struck by just the rhythm of coming and hearing and going and coming and hearing and going. So I've lost my reader this morning because she's with the children across the way. So I'm going to read for us. We're going to do something a little different. We're going to go back all the way back to chapter 3 and read a couple of verses from chapter 3 and then pick back up last week where we were last week in chapter 4, verse 14 and read all the way through chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 1. So I've thoroughly confused you because I didn't even get that right, but. It'll be printed for you on the, on the screen behind me. It's in your worship folder. You can follow along if you're, in your Bibles if you want. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, and then 14, 4, four fourteen through five ten. okay? So let's read this, this passage, kind of these selection of passages from the book of Hebrews that we've already, in some cases, looked at prior, but we're going to do it again this morning, okay? Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then skipping ahead to chapter 4, verse 14, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Notice the language there again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest, chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness, Hebrews, by way of reminder, was written to Jewish Christians who either because of persecution or social pressures of some kind were being tempted to, to quit, maybe even just spiritual exhaustion. They were just tired, and they were beginning to drift away from the gospel. So the letter is written, and we've seen this, right, over and over again already. The letter was written to encourage them to keep going. You see the language there, to hold fast to their confession or their confidence, to the truth of the gospel. And that we to not give into unbelief and to go back into a religious system like Jonathan described is true of Islam into trying to earn your salvation. Now, what happens in this letter is this letter is full of these rich, theological, amazing truths. For example, we looked last week at the idea that Jesus is a high priest who sympathizes with us in our struggles against sin because he's been tempted in every way, just as we are. And so he knows what it's like to walk in our shoes and, and, and so he can help us when we need help. And it's these 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 unbel- these amazing, rich, deep theological truths that we are to then massage these gospel truths down deep into our souls. But here's the trick what we learn already from this book is you can't do that by yourself. It's a community project. And so in Hebrews three thirteen, which we which we printed here for you, we're told that we are to exhort one another daily, that we need one another, that Christian community is the is is an absolute necessity in your life. If these gospel truths, like Jesus being a high priest, are going to get massaged down deep into your soul, that you won't make it through the bad times and the hard times, and life is full of hard times and bad times, unless you have everyday friends, like Hebrews describes here, who are willing to help you root out your unbelief and point you back to the gospel. So what we learn in this book is that the remedy for how hard Being a Christian can be in a a situation like we're in today is a unique community of people who befriend one another in a very unique way. Who exhort one another every day so that we may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, as Hebrews says, right? So this this unique community of people is created by... The gospel, it's created only as we continue as a people to look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And so that's what I want to do this morning. What I want to do is this. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10, which is really the passage we're supposed to be focusing on today, it expands on this doctrine of Christ as a high priest. But what I want to do is to take what we learn about Jesus in these verses here in Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, and connect it back to Hebrews 3, 13, and ask, how does... Jesus being a high priest, which is what what we're talking about, how does it help us to really do a good job of loving and exhorting one another, which is what we're commanded to do? So how does this deep theology help us to love? Because love's the goal. And to do that, I want to do three things this morning. I want us to look at the what, the why, and the how. (laughs) Okay, The what, the why, and the how of Christian community as it relates to being called to exhort one another. What is it? Why? Why is it? Whatever, if, if it's unique, it's uniquely a ministry of truth and tears. Why is it uniquely that that ministry? And the answer is because Jesus is a priest king. And then thirdly, we have to wrap up by saying then how? How is it? How how does the gospel, how is it the power of the gospel and the gospel alone that can produce this unique vision of community uh, that we get here in this passage? Okay, so those three things. The what, the why, and the how of of this unique vision of Christian community and how we are to love and exhort one another. So let's just start with the what then, okay? What is the unique vision for Christian community we're given in Hebrews 3, 13? What does it mean for us to exhort one another daily? Let's dig a little deeper into this word exhort there in that verse, which is the word parakaleo, which is the verb form of the noun paraklete, which is the word that's translated or used to describe the Holy Spirit. Right? So we are to exhort, we are to paracoléo one another. But what does it mean for us to do that? And how do we go about it? What is the what? What's the vision of how we do that? Okay? Now before we get into that word specifically, I want to do one thing. I want to point out one thing. One of the features of this book of Hebrews that nearly all the commentators have taken notice of is that it's almost schizophrenic. Okay, Because at times you read it and the person who's writing these things is very stern, he's very strict. Okay? He's, there, there are these times where it's full of warnings and admonitions and be carefuls and all of this really, really hard, tough language that just feels really stern and really strict. And then, right around the corner from those things, there are other times where he's so soft and gentle. And there, there, so there are these places where Hebrews is full of assurances and tender invitations and whatnot. And so if you go back, chapter 3, which we looked at a few weeks ago, Very stern. Be careful about unbelief, because if you give in the unbelief, it'll, it'll go for you the way it went for those who were wandering in the wilderness. God struck them dead. Their carcasses lay there for the vultures to eat. Watch out. Whoa, stern. Right? And just when you're kind of reeling from how stern he's being, you come to chapter 4, and in chapter 4 it's very tender. There's a high priest who's able to sympathize with you and your weaknesses. And so it goes back and forth. And this has really confused a lot of people, because... Because, you know, people read and study this book and they get confused by this and they think this guy's being schizophrenic and it feels that way because our experience is usually one or the other but never both at the same time. But in Hebrews you get both. Stern, strict, gentle, soft. And the reason you get both in Hebrews, okay, is because the Hebrews writer is doing what he tells us we have to do for one another if we're going to make it to the end. He's exhorting us. This book is an exhortation. He's pericaleoing us, and the word pericaleo there in chapter three, verse thirteen. Okay, this is the word we're talking about. This word exhort. That word pericoleo is is a compound word in the original language. The para at the beginning is a prefix, prefix which means uh, something like to come alongside of or to draw near to. And, of course, this is what we need, isn't it? We need somebody. We need friends who come alongside and walk with us through life. We need friends who will pursue us and draw near to us in the hard times. But the other part of the word, the para there, and then the, the kaleo. The kaleo is a Greek word that means to speak or even to yell or to call out. So you put the two together, and it describes a friend this way. A friend is somebody who comes alongside of you and yells at you. Right? Right? That's a friend. Anybody have a friend like that? They come along. Oh, yes, I heard it. Yes. They come alongside. They come alongside. And then they yell. Right? And so, a true friend is a person who's willing to offer you, offer you both consolation and confrontation. There are times when we, what we need is consolation, right? We need somebody who will just listen. And who will comfort us and who will be a shoulder to cry on. But then there are times when we need confrontation. When we need a friend who's not afraid to speak the truth. Even if it's a truth that's going to be difficult for us to hear. Somebody who's not afraid to yell if need be. And so a good friend, a true friend, is somebody who offers you both truth and tears. Because one without the other doesn't do any good. I'm really, I'm really learning this from a guy who's uh, discipling and mentoring me named Paul Miller. Who wrote The Person of Jesus Study which we do on Friday, Friday mornings, Friday at lunch here. Come on Fridays at noon if you're able to, because we're working through this very thing. And what Paul says and what he's written about and what he's produced in this person of Jesus' study is the reality that love, love is both. Love is compassion, it's tears. And it's truth, it's honesty. So it's, it's both truth and tears. And so what, it's unloving to see somebody in need and to feel no compassion for them, and to do nothing to help—that's unloving, right? First John three, seventeen. If anyone sees a brother in need and yet closes his heart, goes on to say, "How can the love of God be in him?" So it's it's it's, it's absolutely it's unloving and I, and sinful to see somebody in need, to have your heart closed to their need, and to not do anything to help them, to not move in and become a, and, and do something to help. But what I've, also, I've learned and what, what the shift that's had to happen in my life is it's also unloving to see sin in somebody's life and watch them being destroyed by it or destroying other people because of it and to not be angry and to not confront it. That's not loving either. And so there are times when love requires compassion and tears. There's times where it requires anger and honesty, but never one without the other. And what's amazing is, is Jesus Jesus really pulls it off. He loves both ways. And both are love. There's a story to illustrate this. From John chapter 11. When Jesus goes to the funeral of one of his best friends, Lazarus. And when he gets to the funeral, both of Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, who he, he's very familiar with this family, he spent a lot of time with them. They both, both of them, approach him. And each of them, it's fascinating there in John 11. They both, ask, they both say the same thing to Jesus. They come to him and they say, Lord. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, exact same phrase from both of them, right there just a few verses apart in John chapter 11. And yet, Jesus' response to both of them is completely different. It's the opposite, really. Okay, So Martha comes, and and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. He challenges her. He, he, he comes after her. He offers her truth. And if you know anything about Martha from the gospel stories, you know that she can be a little demanding. Right? She's a bit of a control freak. There's one point where she even rebukes Jesus because he won't get on board with her agenda for how things should go. Uh, and, and so his interactions with her Jesus's interactions with Martha usually resorted to Jesus speaking the truth to her. Jesus loved Martha, both here in John 11 and other places in the, in the Bible through the ministry of truth. But then there's a few verses go by, and then Mary comes and says the same thing: "If you would have been here, Lord, our brother would not have died." And what does Jesus do? See, this time there in John 11, he doesn't speak the truth. I mean, he doesn't go after her the way he goes after Mary. What does he do? There's no challenge. There's no lesson. There's no lecture. He weeps. And Tim Keller, who we quote a lot, I know, and who is, is, has uh, preached on that passage, he says, when Martha, with Martha, Jesus pulls her heart out of its flow and into the flow of his heart, but with Mary... He allows himself to be sucked down deep into the sorrow and anguish of her heart and he weeps because both are love. See, what's he doing? See, he's giving each of them what they need. You see? Martha needs to hear the truth. She needs confrontation, but compassionate confrontation. And so Jesus gives her the ministry of truth, but Mary needs a friend to cry with her. She needs consolation, and so Jesus gives her the ministry of tears. Jesus is Equally adept at both truth and tears, because love requires both, and we need both. Now, immediately, I hope, this is where i prayed. Immediately, I hope you, you can see that we have a big problem. Because by nature, every single one of us in this room are typically one or the other. Some of us are truth tellers. Some of us are fixers, right? And then some of us are compassionate. And so compassionate people like me really hate the fixers, right? And truth tellers just really get annoyed with the bleeding heart compassionate people. But every single one of us is usually one or the other. Nobody really does both well. And what this means is is that God has made us with a natural strength and proclivity in one direction or the other. So we come kind of loaded up one way or the other. But what sin does, okay, is sin corrupts this strength. And causes us to overemphasize it and to use it selfishly. To use it to meet our own needs. So let me give you an example. If you're a fixer, right? And I can really preach it to you guys because this is not me so much. Okay? If you're combative by nature, then here's what will happen. Let me just help you. You will tend to, sin will come in and it will tend to make you hypercritical, impatient with people, self-righteous. You'll sinfully tend to use the truth to gain power over people or to tear the people down in order to build yourself up. In other words, you'll use the truth to meet your own needs, right? Now listen, you'll use it to prove you're right because that's your righteousness. You won't use it to meet the needs of others. And therefore, you'll sin against them because you'll not be giving them truth with tears, but just truth only. And so here's the scripture. If you're a truth teller, if this is you, if I'm talking to you, then here's the scripture you need to wrestle with from Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. So no corrupting talk. Now, when I was a kid, they told me that means you can't say cuss words, and it probably does mean that. But in the context of what it means, corrupting talk is linked to talk that builds up. So corrupting talk is talk that words that don't build up, but words that tear others down. What Paul's saying there is, don't let anything come out of your mouth unless it is useful for helping other people and building them up and strengthening them. Now, can you imagine? I do this. Go home and try, say, I'm going, I'm okay, there, it's in the scripture, I'm going to be obedient to that. I'm not going to speak. Uh, we did that, Jonathan and I did this you know, a few weeks ago. We, we said we're not going to speak unless we unless what we speak is profitable and fits the occasion. To build others up. And we found wow. We're really quiet. (laughs) Because a lot of what comes out of our mouth. Is not that. Just try that. And you'll see. You'll begin to see how deep. And how pervasive sin can be. In the way if you're a truth teller. It uses you to use your truth. To rip others apart. Because you're using it selfishly. You're using it to meet your own needs. To try to prop up your own righteousness. Okay but now. Compassionate people, you're not off the hook either, okay? So if you're a compassionate person temperamentally, then you'll, your sins will be the opposite. You will tend to be, and not always, but you'll tend to be kind of cowardly. You'll tend to be a person who really needs the other person's approval. Um, and so you'll be tempted to use, you know, to to, to be selfish too. In other words, you're... <laughs> Compassion a compassionate attitude towards a person can be selfish because what it can really be about if you dig underneath it enough is is that you're you're more concerned about people liking you because you're you're being nice to them than you are doing good to them. And so this is how sick this is and I can talk about this because this is I'm, I'm exposing my own heart. People who fall to this spectrum tend to use tears to meet their own needs. They tend to use tears to get people to like them and think they're wonderful because that's their righteousness. And not use tears to meet the needs of others. So you'll be, if this is you, you'll be naive. You'll tend to underestimate sin. And you'll sin against others by not offering offering them tears with truth, but offering them tears only. And so your passage of Scripture that you need to go and really kind of meditate on and think about is earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 15, Paul says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. What Paul's saying there is there's there's only one mechanism by which the church can grow to maturity in Christ, and that is for us to be a people who are willing to speak the truth to one another. If we're not willing to speak the truth, we are left left without hope or incidences of, of us ever coming to maturity in Christ. And so to refuse to speak the truth to one another is unloving. Speak the truth. Because love is both. And Hebrews says we need both. From one another. Truth without tears is too brutal. It's harsh. Tears without truth is no good either because it's too sentimental. It doesn't do us any good. Sin is deceitful, right? We've seen this and we need people who are willing to say hard things. So we need to be a kind of community that can do both. Confrontation. And consolation, commingling with one another. Holy cow, so who can help us with this? Right? I mean, this is so unique and so unheard of and so kind of out of the box. Where in the world? How how are we going to pull this off? Who can do this? And the answer the Bible gives, and the text in particular gives, of course, is Jesus. And the reason the answer is Jesus is because he is a priest king. And that's what Hebrews 5, 1 through 10 is all about. And also Hebrews chapter seven, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Jesus is a priest-king. He's a priest, but not a priest in the line of Aaron, verse four, chapter five. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, verse five. I mean, verse six and verse ten of chapter five. Okay? So let's talk about Jesus as a priest-king. Because that's really what we're kind of getting getting into the meat of this here. Okay, first, Jesus is a priest. And Hebrews makes this point by likening Jesus' ministry in verses one through four to the ministry of Israel's high priest, and a number of things, okay? First, the function of the high priest, first one, he was to act on behalf of men in relation to God. In other words, he was to be their legal representative, their stand-in, their representative in matters in which they were responsible to God. So the high priest, for example, made sacrifices for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement on a yearly basis in the temple. That was his job. And when he made the sacrifices for the people, they were, the sacrifices were credited to the rest of their accounts. It was just as if they were there in the Holy of Holies making their own sacrifices, because the high priest was their stand-in. He was there on their behalf, right? And, of course, this foreshadows the ministry of Jesus. As we've said, that he is our stand-in, that on the cross he was sacrificed for our sins. And the Bible says that if we put our faith and trust in him, then we're united to him in his death. That is, when he died, it was just as if we died. That he lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. Not only was he our standing in death, he was our standing in life too. And so God looks at us and treats us not according to our sins, but according to Jesus' record of obedience. Because his obedience is credited to our account. And we could talk about this, and we've talked about this a lot. So let's keep going. The second thing here is not only, not only the function of the high priest as it relates to Jesus, but the qualifications of the high priest as they relate to Jesus. He had to be from among the people, verse 1 there. Do you see that? In other words, he had to share in their weakness in order to perform his duties. And we've been talking about this for a number of weeks, how Jesus was made like us, Hebrews two nine. He put on flesh and blood. He was tempted in every way as we are, Hebrews 4.15. That Jesus being God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, Paul says, but made himself nothing and was born in the likeness of man, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, in order to become our high priest. And it's reiterated here again. So you have all this language down there in verses 7 through 10. Look there. About Jesus in the days of his flesh. How he prayed with loud cries and tears and anguish to God. He knows what it's like to be in spiritual anguish. And again, verse 8, this gets really confusing. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. I'm not even going to try to explain that. Except to say that there's some feature in which obedience required his death. And there was no other option, and Jesus had to be brought to this conclusion. He had to wrestle his heart into submission to it, which is what he's doing there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, let this cup pass from me. But he had to learn obedience to God meant that he must go to the cross and suffer. And another one, he says that through his suffering, he's made perfect, verse 9. And again, in 2.10. That is, he's fully qualified to be our Savior and our high priest. Because he meets the qualifications of a high priest. He's from among us. He's put on flesh and blood and walked in our shoes. And been tempted in every way as we are. Yet without sin. And then the third thing there. Not only that he meets the the, the prescriptions of the function of the high priest. And he meets the qualifications of a high priest. But he is busy in the ministry of the high priest. Which is described here as compassion and engagement. Verse 2. With the ignorant in the wayward. Jesus, if you're ignorant or if you're wayward, He's compassionate with you. He is a high priest who's able to sympathize. Remember, we said, because He was tempted, just as we are, and willing to help us in our time of need. And so, all of that there, all of this language there in Hebrews 5 is meant to establish that Jesus is a priest and a high priest. But what the passage teaches is that there's something different about his priesthood. That he's not a priest, verse 4, after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, this guy Melchizedek, in verse 6 and verse 10. Okay? And that's really the significance of what the Hebrews writer is doing here. And that means that he's not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. The theological truth he's trying to drive home is that he's both a priest and a king. And let me show you this, okay, in a couple of ways. First... Who in the world is Melchizedek? Anybody know? If you do, you're lying. Because nobody knows. But he's this guy who shows up in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, as the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem, and also as a priest to the Most High. So this guy Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14 is a priest who is also a king. We're going to get into this chapter 7. So no more about that now. That's all you need to know. This figure, Melchizedek, from the life of Abraham in the Old Testament, he is a priest and a king. And Hebrews says that this person, Melchizedek, is just a foretaste. He's a type of the priest-king who would come, Jesus Christ. So he's linking Jesus' priesthood to Melchizedek to prove that Jesus is both priest and king. But there's a second thing, and it's these quotations here in verse 5 and 6. Where in verse 5, the Hebrews writer quotes Psalm 2, which we read as our call to worship, and then in verse six he quotes from Psalm one ten. Each of those songs being songs about Israel's Messiah King. And so Hebrews is the writer of Hebrews is going through all of this trouble because he wants to get us to see that this person Jesus he's talking us to uh, talking us about talking to us about is both a priest and a king. And the king was the law enforcer, right? The priest was the caregiver. The one who sympathized with people. The king was the person who had the ministry of truth. And the priest was the person with the ministry of tears. And what Hebrews says is in Jesus, the two have come together. Jesus is compassionate and kind and gentle. He's full of authority and power. And that's what makes him absolutely unique. And the best illustration I can give you of this from his own life is the story in John 8 of the woman caught in adultery. And the men of the town have brought this woman out and are just about to execute her for her sin of adultery. And Jesus steps in. And first he says to his, to her accusers, you know the famous line, the, first, the, the one among you without sin cast the first stone. And of course, they all drop their stones and walk away. And then he comes to this woman and he steps Steps towards her, and when they leave, he, he comes to her and he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. You see that truth in tears. Truth in tears. He doesn't condemn her, but he doesn't overlook her sin either. He's compassionate towards her. Jesus doesn't say, If you go and sin no more, maybe I won't condemn you. He doesn't say I base my love on your behavior. He says, woman, I want you to base your behavior on my love. He says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. See, he's compassionate. He offers her consolation. <laughs> but go and sin no more. It's a confrontation. And so you see, in Jesus, these two things blend beautifully together he is the one who can be a friend like this to us and he is the one who can teach us to be this kind of friend to one another and so then the third point as we come towards the end this morning then is finally how if we say yes we need to offer one another both the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears that's the what right that's the vision that's the kind of community we're to be for one another. But then secondly, we know we can't do that on our own, that only Jesus can love that way because he is the priest-king in, in whom these things perfectly come together. And that's the why, or better, the who of this unique vision of Christian community. But thirdly, how. How do you get connected to him so that he can be this kind of friend to you and also transform you into and me into the kind of, this kind of friend for others? In other words, how does the power to live that way come into our lives? And the answer, of course, is the gospel. Uh, the gospel is the power of God, Paul says in Romans one sixteen and 17. And by the gospel, I mean this living spiritual power that can, can come into your life and can change you and undo and unravel the patterns of sin in your life. Because, you see, without the gospel, we will do truth, but we'll do truth in a way that will be too harsh. Or we'll try to do tears, but it'll become too sentimental and we'll, we'll mess it up either way. And so how? How do we bring those two things together? How does it happen? And the answer is the gospel. And that's what this passage is ultimately pointing us to. I look at the wording in Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of Jesus' flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. When did that happen? I mean, from your knowledge of the story of Jesus in the gospels, when did he pray and cry out and weep for God to save him? in Gethsemane right and then of course on the cross and so this passage is pointing us ultimately beyond itself to the cross and here's what we learn about at the cross the cross is the place where infinite love honors infinite justice the cross is the place where we read this passage from Psalms this morning where justice and mercy meet one another and kiss because you see if Jesus had been the Lord of truth over tears he wouldn't have had to die he would have just let us die the due punishment for our sins. And if he had been the Lord of tears over truth, he wouldn't have needed to die. He could have just swept our sins under the rug. But there's a problem. God has a problem. That's what Paul's working out there in Romans 3. There's a huge problem. God is a God of infinite justice. He can't sweep it under the rug. He must deal with sin. But he's also a God of infinite mercy and compassion and forgiveness. And so how can this God of infinite righteousness and justice and wrath and also of infinite love and mercy and compassion, how can a God of righteousness and justice be a God who forgives sin? How does He do it? How can He be just and the justifier of the guilty? This is what Romans 3 is about. It's why I put it there. And the solution is the cross. Because you see, the cross is the solution to how God can be both a God of infinite justice and wrath and also God of infinite compassion and and grace, and patience, and forgiveness, because the cross is where peace and righteousness kiss each other. Because on the cross, the demands of God's justice and righteousness were met. Sin was punished. The sentence was carried out. The wrath of God against human sin and rebellion was poured out. But the sentence wasn't carried out on us. The wrath was poured out on Him. It was poured out on Jesus. That's what the word propitiation means. It means that he stood in our place and the wrath of God came down upon him. And because it came down upon him, now God can turn to us in light of what Jesus has done and offer us forgiveness. And you think about the woman caught in adultery again. How can Jesus say to her, neither do I condemn you? I mean, how dare he? I mean, she sinned. And her sin has destroyed a family of people. I mean, how's, how can he look over? He, she's guilty. How can he be just, and just, it's okay, no worries. She's guilty, but he doesn't condemn her. How can that be? There's only one way. It's because he took the condemnation. See, she didn't get stoned as she should have, because ultimately Jesus would be stoned. He would be put to death for her sins and for ours. Because the cross is the place where righteousness and justice kiss. Now, two applications. And then I'm done. The first, I want to say this to you. Ultimately, what this passage points us to is that Jesus is the friend that we all need. <laughs> because he's the one that can do this. And so I just ask, will you, let, will you listen to Jesus' truth because of his tears? And will you come to him? Will you, will you come to him and allow him to be this kind of friend to you? He's the one. If you're lonely he's the companion you need. If, if you're friendless, he's the friend you're, you need. If you're single, he's the husband or the spouse that you need. He's the one that can love you the way that you need to be loved. He's the one that can exhort you the way uh, that you need to be exhorted. Will you come to him and let his tears allow you, to, allow you to listen to his truth? But then secondly, second application. And that is just this, that the gospel then is the power of God for us to be good friends to one another. Jesus is the friend we need, but he intends that his friendship for us be mediated through our relationships with one another. And so in order to do that, we need the gospel. Let me just work this out on both sides again. Let me talk to each of us in the room, okay? So people, again, all of you who are not like me, who are naturally confrontational, okay? And, I, and there's a sense in which I hate you and another sense in which I envy you. I'm scared of you, but gosh, I wish I could be more like you. Right? Those of you who are bold, not afraid to speak the truth... And a lot, a lot of the time what happens is what's true of that personality is these people are this way because they lack a fundamental humility. So their truth isn't helpful because it's too harsh, it's too brutal, it has too much bite. So the Bible warns that when we confront one another we have to do it gently with humility towards one another. So what truth tellers need, what truth tellers need is they need to be humbled, to be softened by the gospel so that when they tell the truth, their truth isn't so hard. It's not so harsh. There's tears. Now the way this happens is to remember, to go back to the cross, to look to Jesus and to look to the cross and remember that the cross upholds the justice of God. In other words, the cross condemns every single one of us as sinners. The reason truth tellers are so harsh at times with their truth is because they forget that they're sinners, sinner and so they come into the encounter from a place of self-righteousness. So in order to do truth well, you need to be drained of all of your self-righteousness and only the cross can do that. Right, Because it upholds the justice and and righteousness of God. But okay, now, those of you naturally inclined to be compassionate and kind, what's wrong with us is we often uh, lack a fundamental courage or security. And without it, we'll never offer people the truth. So if you're a compassionate person by nature, you need the gospel to secure you enough so that you don't worry about making other people angry with your truth. And the way this happens is to remember that the cross upholds not only the justice of God, but also the love and mercy of God. The cross is the ultimate assurance that God loves us, that God is for us. And you see, the reason a compassionate person lacks this courage and has a hard time risking the disapproval of other people is because the love of God in Christ is not real. In their, they, 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 don't, they have not heard the song of the Father singing over them of his love. And so when the love of God displayed in the cross comes to mean the world to you, when you're warming your heart at the fire of his love, when you're, when you're tuning into the song that he's singing over you, then it won't matter so much if other people are mad at you, especially if they're mad at you because you've done something good to them. You see? You'll be able to live with the disapproval of others. And compassionate people who get secure enough in the gospel to risk, be able to risk this, watch out for those people. They're the most dangerous people, okay? They are dangerous because they're all nice and sweet and bam, right? (laughs) They just can sneak up on you and bop you. But that's what it means to exhort. I mean, that's, that's that's the process of exhortation. So, in conclusion this morning, if you excel in the ministry of truth, look to Jesus. Through the Spirit, he can make you also excel in the ministry of tears so that your truth will build up and not tear others down. If you excel in the ministry of tears, look to Jesus and his cross. Because through the Spirit, he can fill your heart with his love and give you the ministry of truth too. Look to Jesus. He is the one who can make us the kind of friends to one another that we so desperately need to overcome sin and unbelief and to make it to the end, which is what this Hebrews writer is trying to help us do. And so let's pray. Can we do that? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are one who is adept at both the ministry of tears and the ministry of truth. You are our faithful friend who is compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love towards us. But you are one who is not afraid to, to tell us the truth about our own hearts and to offer us a critique that would lead to our repentance and our deeper faith in you. And so I pray this morning that you do, that you do just that as we sing these songs together and as we reflect lead us to very clear, concrete ways that we can begin to repent of the way that we use truth or the way that we use tears selfishly to meet our own needs instead of to love other people well. And Lord Jesus, help us increase our faith in the gospel. For those of us who are truth tellers, humble us. And for those of us who uh, are so afraid to speak the truth because other people might not like us, secure us in the gospel so that we might be conformed to your image, that we might love one another well. And through loving one another well, that you might bear much fruit in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody asked me this week, so how does this work in your own life? And I say, I am the worst sort. I'm the kind of person who, when I'm with you, will be very sweet and nice to you and offer you the ministry of tears. And then when you leave, I'll I'll offer the ministry of truth about you to other people. Thank Jesus he's the savior of sinners. Right? Right? And that he's, that, that he's working on all of us and there's need for all of us to, to move towards him in faith and repentance. And so, because of the truth of the cross, upholding both his justice and his mercy towards you, and, and all the promises that makes to you, you don't have to go and use the truth to prove you're right. Because of the work of Jesus, you can't be more right than you are right now. And you don't have to withhold the truth from other people for fear... Of their disapproval, because the cross sings the love song of the Father over you. That's the promise of the benediction. So this benediction then really dip, does become the food and the fuel by which we go and be the kind of friends to one another that the Scripture calls us to be. And so receive this, and then go and parakaleo one another well, uh, and parakaleo those that you're involved in in our city, involved with in our city. Let's let's let me sing. Let me say this over you then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.